0: Everything will be all right. Every thing is gonna be alright.
1: Good day and welcome to the Pandemi Show. Stories of the pandemic for people living in the pandemic. No one is alone on the pandemic show. Thanks for joining us as we unite humanity through stories of hope, connection, and community in the face of the global pandemic. We are all in this together and we're glad you're here together with us. Thanks for taking a moment to like, subscribe, and follow The Pandemic Show on social media.
2: Today, we're venturing into the culinary field and we're gonna talk the pandemic and food with a very special culinary guest. Who are you?
0: I'm Andrew Coppolino.
2: I've been listening to Andrew on the radio. So I'm really excited today to be talking food with Andrew Coppolino. It was interesting how we met. I connected with Andrew coincidentally, totally a fluke. I was masked up at the Kitchener Market, downtown Kitchener, and I was at the same booth as Andrew Coppolino. After I made my purchase, I went to the next person, which was Andrew, and they said, hello, Andrew, how are you? And then I heard his voice, and I'm like, hot diggity dog. I recognize that voice. That's Andrew Coppolino. And we were both at TWB Brewing. We were picking up some some hops in liquid form. And then I followed up with you later on email and asked you to be on the pandemic show. Thank you so much for responding. Yes, food is a very social aspect of our lives. It's a very communal type of thing and food in so many ways has been disrupted during the pandemic. Could you just for our listeners set us up and let us know what was your life like as a food guru pre-pandemic?
0: Oh, it was a busy life. There was no doubt. It was a day-to-day activity of of checking out new restaurants, of writing about food, about finding new places to go. I went to probably two or three, maybe four restaurants over the course of seven or eight days, you know, talking with chefs, working with, talking to producers, farmers, people that are selling food. It was busy it was the normal course of activity for me that's what I do for the last uh, 10 or 15 years maybe more then all of a sudden it kind of stopped like it did for everybody else but I I can't say that the pathway that I was on leading up to that fateful day when everything got shut down was the normal course of my day doing what I do right talking about food preparing for interviews preparing for the radio preparing columns for for newspapers and online
2: Like you said, you were spending a lot of time in dining rooms at restaurants throughout the region and Southern Ontario. And then March, 2020, the pandemic shut down Ontario. We went into a lockdown. How did that impact you as a food guru?
0: Well, it was obviously very very hard for me. I mean, I'm at some distance obviously from the restaurant industry in terms of working in a restaurant or cooking, but it still hurt a lot. I mean, these are people that I know, they have become acquaintances of mine, some of them are friends. But certainly having immersed myself in the industry for the last whatever 15 years, it was a shock and it was a surprise and it was a little bit scary. Now, I was very very lucky. I didn't have to worry about my income. I did lose a little bit of income, but my job essentially stayed pretty much the same and my lifestyle didn't have to change. By fortune of my wife, you know, having a shared income with her, we, we did okay. We were very lucky that way. But it hurt a lot to hear about stories about restaurants closing, restaurants shutting down, restaurants laying off people that had to go on employment insurance and all, and all that kind of thing. It was shocking. I, I mean, I was scared for the industry.
2: So you had been reviewing and going to re- several restaurants a week, so did you then transition to takeout?
0: Yeah, that's sort of what we had to do. Uh, I could still conduct a lot of the business that I was doing by telephones. I could buy a food item, I could buy a meal, and I could bring it home, and I could write about it, or I could have delivery. And then I would talk to the chef about what I ate. It was not so much reviews as here's the story of a dish. So I'll take I get a schnitzel or I'll get a banh mi sandwich, and I wanted to know more about it, so I would do some research, call the call the restaurant, talk to them, and sort of did it virtually, just like just about everybody else's life went virtual. A little bit hard with food though, as you know you know you take out food and it's sort of not as good as when you get it you know when you have it in the dining room there was a sort of a change that way and what we and the way I operated and the kind of things I would talk about but carried on pretty much in a virtual way talking about food and also then asking them a little bit about how their businesses were going what uh, steps had they taken to change and adapt and try to survive. Because at that point, as the shutdown happened, it really was about survival.
2: It was like nothing we'd ever experienced before. Hopefully, like nothing we'll ever have to experience again. And the food and hospitality industry really seemed to be hit the hardest of all the industries. It was a gathering place, a communal place. I know one of my favorite restaurants is uh, Dave's Hot Pot down by uh, Rockway Gardens in Kitchener. And that's a hot pot, Chinese hot pot (laughs) is a very communal, it's like Korean barbecue. Everyone is cooking the food together at the table, working together as a team to cook. I haven't been to hot pot in going on to two years. It's right, And I don't even know if hot pot (laughs) is those type buffets and those types of restaurants, if they're even back now that we're in the double vaccination stage of the pandemic. Double vax, is it time to relax? What about buffets and hot pots? Are those restaurants Uh coming back to...
0: Yeah, I think they are. I think there's, I just read recently that they're looking at how they're going to get uh, some of those larger venues open and places where people share, you know, fairly tight space. I do think that's coming back. But yeah, to your point, the, the idea that we couldn't get together in these groups, we couldn't get together with family and friends, I think has been a very, very serious thing for not only the food and hospitality industry, but the tourism industry as well. That one has... The one I think that's going to be the most severely affected by this food and beverage, yes, but the tourism industry has really been decimated by, you know, going into a hotel, going to an event, a conference, a concert, whatever it might be. They've really, really hurt. Uh, I think they're going to come back, but it's going to be a long time before we get to that normal uh, phase again.
2: So in March 2020 restaurants were forced to shut their dining room where most of their income is generated restaurants and the hospitality industry lost but it seemed that grocery stores especially the big box stores they were really pandemic winners can you speak to any to the transition of people then being more reliant on grocery stores and the benefit that grocery stores had in relation to the pandemic
0: i think that's a very good point a good portion of what we ate came from restaurants and i think that sort of flipped after the pandemic struck and more people had to get their food elsewhere and grocery stores did benefit and grocery stores I think also benefited people quite a bit they they offered breads and and cooking ingredients and stuff that uh, that we could cook and bake ourselves so i think it it helped people get back in the kitchen it helped people do cooking again that they probably haven't done to this extent for a very very long period of time i mean you heard the stories probably of you couldn't find yeast uh, you couldn't find flours you know so there, i think there was a return to to self-sufficiency or a greater degree of self-sufficiency. I think people gardened more. I think they started growing stuff in their garden. I think they started preserving. There was a time that there was a global shortage of mason jars for pickling or making relishes or whatever. So that's a very good point. I think that the the idea of people returning to grocery stores but bringing back food that they were going to cook themselves in their own kitchens I think that became a very, very strong part of, I guess, a new awakening of of our food supply and our food system. I don't know whether it's kept that degree of intensity. I think it's probably slumped back now that things are sort of more normal, if not exactly normal. But I do think for a while, people really learned how to... I know in my house, my my daughter was cooking tons of bread, and, and then all of a sudden, She didn't bake anymore, and we have all kinds of yeast in the fridge that's no good now. So I think there has been an evolution of the way people have looked at food and preparing it themselves. So grocery stores certainly were key factors, key contributors.
2: The government did a great job with CERB and providing supports to the frontline workers that were laid off in the hospitality industry. I'm still trying to get my mind around why companies like Loblaws or other grocery stores would get corporate welfare during the pandemic when they were making record high profits. I think that's just one of the areas where it shows one of those areas that we have to really investigate because we've taken on so much debt and now we're hearing about inflation. The
0: subsidies are supposed to continue. There's nothing solid about that yet, but sometime in October, they were supposed to end. I think they're going to need to continue for the winter period. So I think the, the sort of the view of the people in the industry is a lot shorter. It's not as far-reaching as you know. What did Loblaws do? How, how much did and Weston get out of all this? And all of those kinds of details. Uh, I know people in the industry that, that are cooking or cooking and that are service staff, and I think they're really concerned about the stability of this industry. What going into the winter is it going to look like? Um, are their jobs safe? Uh, will they get enough hours to make ends meet? And lo and behold, will that 10 cents an hour raise that Doug Ford gave me make any bloody difference at all, <laughs> which we know uh, it won't. I'm
2: not, yeah, that's 10 cents an hour raise. I don't know if that's... That's crazy. It's almost insulting. You talked about some shortages in the supply chain around pickling jars and around yeast. We know that there's huge supply chain issues around the world. There was a the time in the pandemic when the, the freighter ship turned sideways in this, in the canal in Egypt. We now have cargo ships stacking up in California, computer Mm -hmm. chips. There's a computer chip shortage. Were there other types of supply chain issues? I know it looks like the prices of products or food in the grocery store and food-like substances are going up. Is that a trend that you've seen written about in the industry literature?
0: Well, I haven't read much of the industry literature, but I know from firsthand from talking to restaurateurs that. Food prices are going up, especially areas like meat and sort of harder to get proteins. They're going to be up in price. Everything's in, up in price, and the gas that gets your food to the to the restaurant to be cooked that's a dollar, what dollar forty six, dollar forty seven now. One of the gentlemen that I spoke to, who owns a fast food restaurant, uh, burger place, couldn't get the proper. Um, funds he wants for his hamburgers. So that stuff is still out there. so what he did is he bought a whole bunch, froze them and is hoping that supply chain will catch up again. I think it's a supply chain issue that's not food related, but staffing and getting people to work at restaurants is really, really hard. Uh, Trying to find people that want to come into the industry after they've left it, A lot of times they've left it and gone off to other jobs and they found, hey, this isn't so bad. You know, I'm making a little bit more money. I have more normal social life. I can actually have a family. I can have a girlfriend or a boyfriend or whatever. And uh, I don't have to work until all hours of the morning. So supplies are in short supply uh, from hamburger buns, but also so are the staff that are working there. The amount of number of people that are in the industry now has gone down incredibly low and it's remains to be seen whether it's going to be built up and to what degree it will There's be so
2: much uncertainty i know we're now in uh in the late october uh two-thirds through the way october i'm surprised how well we seem to be doing in southern ontario with a high double vax rate we seem to be in a lot better shape <clears throat> than we were this time last year now there was a lot of hypothesizing and speculating about Will the schools shut down again? When we open the schools in September, will there be a huge increase in our numbers? Will the hospitals be strained? Will the ICUs, the intensive care units be strained? And that mm. hasn't seemed to happen this year. And what other explanation is there than the vaccination campaign?
0: Yeah, yeah. I agree. I mean, this double vax thing and getting 85% of Waterloo Region uh, in that double vax uh, situation, I think, has really saved the restaurants. It was funny, you know. Uh, I talked to one restaurant It's a popular barbecue joint locally here in Kitchener. They had their best August on record, like in terms of sales. So people are rallying. People are rallying. Is
2: it people coming in for takeout? Yeah.
0: Yeah. And the patio and the patio, but not indoors. They had, you know, had to reduce indoors to below 50% or whatever. But, you know, I I guess my point is there that there's, there's a lot of support for restaurants. There's a lot of support for businesses. And I think that when we have people now at 90%, nearly 90% vaccinated for the community, Indoor can open again because it's going to have to once the patios are no longer an option. Uh, And that's where it sort of gets scary. If we have a wave where, like you mentioned, ICUs are overburdened and all of that, then the health officials are going to have to cut back our access a bit. Fingers crossed if that doesn't happen. I know that the restaurants are really, really hoping to be able to get back to hundred percent capacity um, where they were at like 50 or 40 or whatever before. So yeah, fingers crossed that we keep going on this vaccination route.
2: Now that we're seeing that things seem to be relatively stable two to the thirds of the way through October, schools have been open for five or six weeks. Mm. I wonder if we're going to avoid a really serious fourth wave and the numbers will go down and we can have confidence again. I, I dined inside for the first time since March 2020, just two weeks ago with yeah. some childhood friends, It was surreal being uh, inside yeah. eating and seeing people that I haven't that I spent most of my life fraternizing with and then I hadn't seen very much for almost two years. And yeah, there is that, my confidence is returning that yeah. we're not looking at this in the rear view with the Delta variant is very serious as we saw in India. We still have to be concerned about that, especially with the, the remaining people that are, are unvaxxed. We're not out of the woods yet, but I mean, it does seem like there's sunny days ahead and it's positive that going into late fall where it's gonna start getting cold and wet and then early winter where we're gonna see some snow, that in, inside dining, it could be a safe option again.
0: Yeah, I think so. And I, but I want to pick up on your point about confidence. I think that there's still quite a few people who aren't confident, who do, who do not feel safe in restaurants. And I'll tell you, I've been in a lot of restaurants, mostly when there's not a lot of people there, if I'm interviewing a chef. But when I have eaten there, I sort of felt, because it's with people that I know, good friends or, or my wife or, and the kids, but I sort of feel it's a little bit unsettling when there's a lot of people around you. So I think that that learning curve of being confident, like, you're, like you took a year, it, I think it's going to be a big curve for people. I think there's going to be a lot of people who are going to say, no, and I'm going to stay right out of this for now. And I'll wait and see what happens in the spring. We got to remember too now, with this winter coming along, there are going to be some flus. There are going to be some colds, all of which might mimic you know, what you might experience if you have COVID-19. So I think once people start to feel that a little bit, they're going to have to sort of have the confidence that the vaccines work, get themselves checked if they need to, or stay home if they they feel they must, because they're not feeling well. But we have to hope that the confidence level rises so we can get those dining rooms full again to, to sort of keep the restaurants alive.
2: Good point. Another trend I heard early on and I heard this one on 98.5 CKWR on the morning show with Larry Fine during the money minute, is that comfort foods, traditional comfort foods and brands, different cookie companies, they saw a real benefit as with all the uncertainty and fear and anxiety, people went back to their childhood go-tos, their comfort foods, their family comfort foods.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I I don't think there's any way to argue that point is not true. There have been dozens and dozens of cases and examples of old foods that have been rechristened or, you know, old foods that have sort of gotten back into the forefront of people's minds, whether it's uh, Nutella or whether it's uh, Cheese balls or Fritos or whatever you used to eat as a kid. I think people have really, you know, at the very beginning of our conversation, you talked about the companionship that's around food and that the whole idea of, of a companion is one that you break bread with, right? To, to to go look at its etymology. But I think what people are doing is they're sort of what makes me feel good. What makes me what what's made me feel comfortable? What do I rely on here? Is it mom's chili? Is it a special you know, pasta sauce that Nona used to make? Uh, I love those old style hamburgers that we used to get at the Harmony. You know, where can I? I find those pork sliders, and, and so people are looking for the simplicity in a very complex time of, of what food can offer. But I think also the comfort and the sharing, and that when you talk about an Oreo and twisting it open and licking the the cream out of the middle, I mean just about everybody can relate to that, right? So it's a thing we can share, even though we may not be face to face to do it. So I, I don't think there's any way of arguing that comfort foods became really, really popular—stews and chilies and sort of warm nurturing one pot dinners that that grandma used to make people I think were recovering those digging them out again finding those recipes asking mom how she prepared this and then trying to duplicate it at home I think that's been a big factor for people to sort of maintain some semblance of normalcy and some sort of sanity in what was a pretty crazy time there for a while you know several months ago
2: was there a trend to people doing more farm pickups and uh, community shared agricultures I
0: can't say data like in a quantifiable but in a qualitative way I can say yeah and the farmers that I've spoken to they've added shifts or they've added additional pickup days they may have increased their crop acreage for or area for certain growing uh, periods this is in Guelph this is or Wellington County this is in Waterloo Region this is in Perth County I don't think there's any way of arguing with that either you know people again have gotten back to the earth they want to know where their food comes from when supply chains are down what you look for is local and I think also people are more aware now of what it is they're eating. They want to know where their food comes from. They want to connect with the people who are growing it. And the best way to do that, I'm not nothing against grocery stores, but obviously you, where those apples came from or where that you know squash came from, you don't really know when you buy it at a grocery store. But if you go to farmside uh, farm stand pickups uh, on the road out in Wellesley or wherever it might be that's the farmer who grew it you can talk to him or her you can learn a little bit about the about the uh, about the produce and you're outdoors where you can feel safe so for sure i think csas and I think farm or farm uh, pickups uh, at the at the locations has increased undoubtedly in the last uh, in the last year.
2: It does blow my mind when I go into a grocery store in February and I can get so many things that are out of season. We are so fortunate with our supply chain, but I also look in the store and I see so much food-like substances, the things that are heavily processed, heavily manufactured the things that our bodies don't really thrive on. And it seems that that know your food trend was really gaining speed before the pandemic. And the pandemic might have helped that buy local
0: movement along to some degree. Yeah, I think it did to a degree, but I also think that when in seeking that comfort food stuff, I think people kind of slid back a bit too. Yeah, good right? point. Fast convenience was easy. Cooking takes a lot of time and it takes a lot of work. You got to plan your meal. You got to shop for it. You got to prepare the food. You got to cook the food. You got to eat the food. You got to clear the table and then put everything away. It takes a lot of work. It's a lot more convenient to order from a restaurant and get the food in, and or to buy processed food. So I think it's probably what the one hand gives, the other hand takes away. So I think I agree with you that there is a move to local and thinking about local because we recognize these people as being part of our economy, as part of our culture, as part of our community. But at the same time, they're thinking, oh, I just want some of that marshmallow spread to put it on a piece of bread or (laughs) whatever it might be. What's that stuff called? I don't even know. The the,
2: the cheese-like substance that comes in a jar.
0: Yeah, yeah. But you know, like, I'm not a food snob. I mean, I eat everything and I like everything and stuff that I remember from my childhood gives me pleasure and it makes me feel good. So I think a lot of people felt the same way and they they wanted that in their lives.
2: Food security was something that I heard a lot of my friends talking about. I heard some people hypothesizing that food security could become even more of a challenge moving forward in the pandemic. I moved to the country in my late 20s, early 30s, and started exploring agriculture and homesteading. I have a freezer full of buttercup, my freezer pet cow. I've got some sheep in there. I've got some poultry and fowl, some backyard birds. But not everybody has the facilities or the land or the outdoor space to do that. But a lot of people have access to gardening. And I'm hearing more talk now about people doing gardening. Have you seen, there was a seed shortage too early on in the the first spring of the pandemic. Yes. Yeah. I wonder if we're going to see some positive trends continue with gardening and backyard meat production in small numbers as a result. Like, I I think if we all think of our grandparents, all of our grandparents had gardens. Our grandparents lived in a time where the food distribution was much different than now. Our parents, to some degree, had garden. But people under 40 doesn't seem to be as big of a deal as it once was in times past. It'll be interesting to see if in five years from now, people are sticking with gardening and their backyard chickens and all those types of things because who knows when there will be another issue like this that could have a an impact on the food supply chain and also the things that we eat that are local they taste better they're fresher so there is a there is a big benefit.
0: I think so, and it has to do with uh, things that people are really concerned about, like food miles. Like if you can go to your local farmer and ride your bike, or you can walk to the market. We walk to the Kitchener Market. That's where I, I met you. You know, we can buy food. We're very very lucky because we can. I can walk and buy all of my food, just about all of it. There are people that can't do that, though. There are food deserts within Kitchener, Waterloo, Cambridge, Guelph, and our surrounding area. There are places where people can't get fresh food, and there are people that have real a lot of trouble, not just from proximity but for monetary, monetary uh, concerns as well. there are people that can't afford the kind of food that they need to be healthy and supplies are stretched and therefore food banks are stretched as well. so I think food security moving forward is going to be a bigger bigger part a bigger and bigger part of our reality and I don't think it's a matter of if we have another situation like this it's going to be when we have another situation like this where we have something invading you know taking over our our, our safe culture, our safe society, that we need to adapt to, and the food will be lagging behind in in its adaptation. We'll have to sort of wait for it to catch up. And in that gap, I think, in that liminal space, if you like, between those two points, um, that's when there are problems with food security, with people being malnourished, with people struggling to feed themselves, And keep a shelter over their houses as well. I don't think we should ever forget that as the privileged ones that, you know, have secure incomes and can fend for ourselves fairly well by the grace of God, I guess, as it were.
2: Yeah, we're very lucky here today on the Pandemic Show to be talking food with Andrew Coppolino, food guru. Andrew, the lockdowns hopefully are behind us. Hopefully the lockdowns are behind us. I know that in the first lockdown, I did go for the comfort foods. But then I realized, do I want to be putting on a lot of pandemic weight? And I started to migrate back towards the fruits and vegetables. What are you hearing about people in terms of people gaining weight or people finding a healthier diet and a healthier lifestyle?
0: I think this was a shock for people. And I think anytime there's a shock or a change in what their habits are, that it can prompt people. To act accordingly and and act in a different in a different way. This sort of I like to think of this as temporary. That we're going to go back pretty much normal. I think human nature really does sort of like water find its level again. And I think that after this is over, there'll be a time when we're very vigilant and we probably are more attendant on being better to ourselves, better to the world. But it'll probably go back to the way we were before the pandemic at some point. And I think some of these changes will stay, they will stick around, but I think a lot of them too will sort of fall away and be forgotten.
2: I know Barb, on the guest on the show early in season two, she lost 50 pounds Is by changing right? her diet <laughs> yeah. and being disciplined on what she put into her body during the pandemic. My hat goes off to her.
0: Yeah, I didn't experience that. I in fact probably <laughs> drank a little too much of that good beer that we shared a moment over at TWB there. I, I, I again what I think is a six of one half and does the other, right?
2: One of the things I've done well in lockdown during the first three lockdowns is I started watching celebrity chef Maddie Madison. Yeah he's learning I had heard of him before. A lot of my friends' kids watch him and that's what got him on my screen. And when I watched his boiled meat episode, (laughs) I just had like a spiritual connection. Boiled meat is delicious. Meat scum on the top. Now, Maddie Madison in some of the episodes I've watched, has been recommending Newfoundland salt. I've been getting most of my salt from the mine up in Godrich, Godrich, Ontario, trying to source close to home. But as a food critic, is there a difference between uh, sea salt and Godrich mined salt in your opinion?
0: No, I don't think so. I think salt is salt is salt. I think you can get down to very fine grains and look at you know, the crystals, crystalline structure, et cetera, et cetera. But mostly they have probably about the same amount of sodium. There's a certain romance to them, obviously, some Malden salt, but it's essentially all from the same source. I can't tell you, though, that I've ever had newfoundland salt i've had salts from other parts of the world and really i think there's a textural difference sometimes obviously the more processed it is the sort of the more kind of acidic i think it can be other salts can be a little bit uh, softer a little bit milder and certainly finishing a dish with some nice maldon salt it has a beautiful crystalline structure and it adds a lot of texture but in terms of the salt qualities i probably think are pretty minor but I'm not a salt expert, so.
2: I went out and bought a box of Newfoundland salt when I heard Maddie Madison, Celebrity Chef, and the success he has with it in his cooking. Yeah, it made me try it. I didn't really notice a difference, but I did feel warm and fuzzy knowing I'm using a similar ingredient to Celebrity Chef Maddie Madison.
0: Well, what's wrong with that?
2: It was great. It It was great to go outside of my comfort zone. It was great to support another salt producer. One of the new foods that I tried, it's more of a drink, during the pandemic was beef fizz have you ever heard of the drink beef fizz
0: i have yeah i confess to not having tried it don't even know what really it is but i have heard of it so enlighten me
2: so you haven't had it so you don't know how much you may or may not love it that's true so beef fizz is a half beef broth half ginger ale drink that uh, I guess some very hardworking farmers used to indulge in after a long day of slogging it out in the fields. I've made it. I was impressed. (laughs) I was skeptical that I wouldn't like it at first and then I tried it. And I don't want to say it wasn't bad because it was actually rather nice. But I thought I'm just using these store-bought ingredients. I want to do it better. I've been raising Raising beef for the last eight or nine years. And in September, 2019, got some new additions to the herd, got a black Angus buttercup was now in the freezer, got Daisy, the Holstein who's now hope, who's part of a breeding program. We're crossbreeding her with some Wagyu, beef from the Wagyu, part of Japan. Because Daisy will birth not in Wagyu, Japan, we're going to call the offspring Nithgu. She is living near the Nith River. But my goal now is to make a delicious beef broth from buttercup and then mix it with a ginger ale and see if it's even better than store
0: Bought. Well, that will be an interesting experiment. I have no idea because I've never tasted anything that that mixes those two really quite contradictory kinds of liquids.
2: I don't think it's a drink of our era. I think it was more a drink of when people were out toiling in the fields and doing extremely hard labor and needed something that you know you'd be dry as a chip at the end of the day out in the hot sun. So you need something that's going to fill you up. It's going to rehydrate you. And I think beef is is just that drink.
0: Well, it has some protein too, right? So if you were, you know, slogging it out, like you say, for 12 hours, you need something to rebuild muscles and stuff. So I imagine it's more better It's better than just water in terms of, of providing some actual nutrition too.
2: Now, Andrew Coppolino, at a future date, would you be up to sample some homemade beef fizz?
0: I would certainly be up to that.
2: And I think <laughs> it would be great if we could have two judges or two uh, culinary artists so we're going to reach out to Maddie Madison as well and see if he might be a judge on our okay. beef fizz panel. Are you open to that idea?
0: <laughs> sure. I would be for sure.
2: <laughs> Hot diggity dog. We're lucky today here on the Pandemic Show. Stories of the pandemic for the people of the pandemic. Andrew, you mentioned how food banks are stretched and there have been pandemic winners, over 500 billionaires created in the first year of the pandemic. Well, over half a million people fell below poverty. The mm-hmm. food bank is stretched. And we would just like to encourage everyone to donate to your local food bank because families are still in need. I think you've nailed
0: it. I think it's the supply lines that have dwindled and the number of people who have lost income and are in a position where they need to get help with their food. So those are that's a perfect storm there that's, that's happening at the food bank. So anything you can do to support them, it's good to give money. They can go out and buy what they need. That's the best way to help the food bank. They like cans of goods that are non-perishable, of course, but money helps them a lot, too. I just wanted to, if I can plug another organization, a a not-for-profit, it's called Food for Kids KW, and it's something that I think is filling a gap and a niche in in the food desert situation. They identify kids in our school systems in Waterloo Region, and they are able to slip food into the knapsacks of these kids for the weekends when they go home. So during the week, you know, there are school lunches and there's programs that help them. But during weekends and holidays and breaks in school, they are lacking in food. So if you could look up Food for Kids, KW... Um, and support them too. It helps kids during the school year, often when there isn't other formal programs in place. And that's a sort of, a, that institution, just like the the food bank has grown astronomically over the last course of this 18 months or whatever, they've really been stretched to support the kids in need.
2: And and kids can't learn on an empty stomach. Nobody can learn on an empty no. stomach. Nobody can no. successfully work on an empty stomach. Andrew Coppolino thank you so much for bringing that to our attention. And people of the pandemic- Thank you, if you can, for supporting your local food bank and your local nutrition for learning in your local schools. It takes a community, and this is when our community needs us. Andrew, we're two months away from 2022. We're not looking at the pandemic yet in the rear view, but do you have any trends or things that we should keep our eyes out for regarding food for 2022?
0: Well, I think restaurants are going to be stretched to survive still through the through the winter time so going into January February March those are traditionally really really slow months for restaurants the thing that's kept them alive has been Uh, takeout and delivery. And I think that's going to continue. I think that when you see a fine dining restaurant, they're gone. They're going to be more casual, changing to more relaxed kind of dining. Some portion sizes are going to be smaller because of food costs. Menus are going to be smaller just because there isn't as much food around as they would like. They can't service it all. They don't have enough staff. And I think that that's the food and the sort of the basic resources of the restaurant. But what I want to focus on in, in our parting words here is the staff and the people that are still going to be requiring our support, our patience and being good, responsible consumers, not being mean and rude and make sure you tip well and understand that these people are under a lot of pressure, resources that are, are smaller than they were before. So be patient with your restaurants They're still going to be suffering over the next, into the new year. It isn't going to change like a light bulb going on or off. And so just try to be patient, be respectful.
2: It took us months to adapt to the pandemic and it's going to take us just as much time or if not longer to adapt to being out of the pandemic whenever that time comes. Good point, Andrew Coppolino, food guru. And when we're finally looking at the pandemic in the rear view and it's safe, to go out it's safe to gather indoors mask free with people that aren't in our bubbles
0: what do you hope the world is like well i hope we learn to be kinder and gentler and be more community oriented be really aware of our local economies and the people that are working next to us and not just the people that are you know serving you or cooking for you but uh, the people that are delivering food the people that are are bringing their fresh bread into a restaurant or they're a cheesemaker that's sort of sharing her skill and knowledge about cheese that we can eat in a restaurant i think i think just sort of being aware of this whole community and the whole society that's around us that we're not eating in, an is- in isolation. We're not eating in a vacuum. Uh, everything we do has an effect on other people. And I think that that will be something that I hope people are much more reflective and mindful of moving forward. And I think it'll make the dining scene better. And I think it'll make our appreciation of each other uh, stronger.
2: And just before we go, you did bring up delivery and the gig economy, the skip the dishes, the food mm-hmm. delivery people, they showed up. I think it was a lot of people desperate for work but yeah. they provided an essential an essential service. On the last federal budget, the gig economy was mentioned dozens of times, but there's no actual dollars given to support people in the gig economy. Right. Are there any observations around the gig economy as it relates to food? This is uncharted territory. The gig economy, within the last 5, 10 years, this is a new part of our economy. Has it been devastated or has it been is it a pandemic winner or a pandemic loser? In some ways, it seems like the people that were lost their jobs went there and the corporate structure was the real winner. I'm not sure that the workers are making all that money. And you hear in different jurisdictions, they're trying to unionize for better, better pay, kind of like the Uber type businesses that skip the dishes. Any insights to leave us with there? Uh, Yeah, I think that
0: I think, again, you have to. I mean, they're not going away. I mean, this is going to be part of the restaurant industry now, delivery, having drivers from Uber to dish DoorDash to all of that. Maybe, maybe in Toronto it's it's people on bikes riding, taking your groceries up and down the streets. I think we need to figure out how to make that work in this in this kind of economy. And I think what the points you brought up about the corporate structure are good ones. I mean, big companies are tending to whittle away the money that they were making from $1,000 a week down to three, $400 a week. And that's not tenable. I think the whole industry needs the support and the redefinition of how we're going to make sure that this is a living wage that people can actually survive here because the restaurant industry depends on delivery it depends on takeout and the people that are doing that work if you if you believe in uber uber eats and doordash and you want to have takeout and you want to use those services then make sure you're paying for it fully and make sure you're tipping and making sure that people get the money that they deserve that's only the basic part of the infrastructure but i i think the whole overweening structure uh, has to be examined and looked at again how are we going to make it work so that these people can live and have happy safe and secure incomes and lives.
2: I'm very grateful for your time, shining some light on the intricacies of the food industry during the pandemic. And thank you so much for all you do, raising awareness about the culinary environment here in Waterloo Region. I'm a big fan of your work and it was a pleasure meeting you. Thank you so much.
0: Thanks very much for having me.
1: Thanks for listening to The Pandemic Show. We're all in this together and we're glad you're here together with us. Physically distance with us at pandemyshow.com. Be a part of our community by subscribing to and sharing The Pandemic Show. Thanks for taking a minute to email an episode, share a link, or promote us on social media. Pandemic Show is on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and Reddit. Stories from the Pandemic for the people of the Pandemic. Do you have an interesting Pandemic story and want to share? Email us at pandemyshow at gmail.com. Thanks to all our guests. Thanks to Giant Value for singing us in and letting us know everything is going to be all right. No one is alone at The Pandemic Show.